This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. It was 10.45 a.m. on Friday, January 21st, 1910. A terrible thunderstorm had drenched Paris, France for the past 12 hours. Water was pooling in muddy puddles along the cobblestone streets. Thick, dark clouds hovered over the city, casting a pall over the gas-lit avenues. But the Parisians were unconcerned as they went about their morning. It typically rained during this time of year, so there was nothing to fret over. The Seine River, which cut through the center of Paris, often rose several feet in the winter months. But at 10.50 a.m., every public clock in the city stopped ticking. The electricity for the clock towers came from a single power station on the outskirts of the city. It had just flooded, causing a short circuit. As people noticed the silent clocks, they gathered along the riverbank walls to check the water level. The height of the Seine was the best way to see how much rainfall had accumulated. The water was already four feet higher than the day before, and it was flowing extremely fast. As people watched the churning froth of the river, they noticed large chunks of debris bobbing in its current. Some looked like bundles of wet clothing. As they peered over the stone walls to get a better look, cries of terror erupted from the crowd. Some of them recognized what the wet bundles actually were. They were rotting corpses. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Thursday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first of two episodes on the Great Paris Flood in 1910, a fatal deluge that covered France's capital city over the course of 10 harrowing days. This week, we'll hear about the deluge of rain and saturation of the surrounding region in the months leading up to the flood. We'll also explore the first warnings of impending destruction that were largely ignored by the Parisian population until it was too late. Next week, we'll follow the heroic Paris police as they rescue citizens in drowned neighborhoods. We'll also explore the aftermath and learn how the terrible 1910 flood affected future disaster responses worldwide. Though it's only 500 miles long, the Seine is one of the most famous rivers in the world. It runs through Paris, the city of light, and has appeared in countless paintings, songs, and poems. The source of the romantic river is in a small village in the northeast of France, near the city of Dijon. It flows west from there, through the cities of Troyes, Paris, and Rouen, before pouring into the English Channel. Along the way, the Seine collects water from several tributaries that carry water from other regions. By the time the river reaches Paris, it has an average depth of around six and a half feet. The Seine divides the city of Paris in two halves, called the left bank and the right bank. The entire city rests in a land basin that is prone to collecting rainwater runoff. If the Seine flooded, the city center would be the first section to be inundated. For most of Paris's 2,000-year history, there have been stone walls and docks called quays along the Seine. These were built for tying up boats to unload cargo and passengers. And they also serve as levees to hold back the river. But the stone walls on the river were not only for boats. By 1910, the quays were a bustling center of Parisian commerce. In many places, long stretches of trees and greenery lined the top of the walls, and cobblestone paths led along the riverbank. These green spaces were a popular attraction for the city's inhabitants. The thick quays were tall enough to compensate for the annual rush of high water during the rainy months. Parisians were used to seeing the river's level change dramatically. When it started rising in January of 1910, nothing seemed out of the ordinary. But in addition to the current rainfall, runoff was still coming from tributaries and groundwater far upstream from Paris. From June 1909 through January 1910, France experienced 38% more rainfall than normal. The conditions for severe flooding had been building for the past six months. The National Académie de Séances wrote an assessment of the situation. They concluded their report with a warning that by November of 1909, the soil of the land basin around Paris had reached its maximum saturation point. Any rainfall for the rest of the winter of 1910 would run off into the rivers. By the end of January, the Seine would reach the highest level recorded in history and plunge the city into chaos. During the first two weeks of the new year, a low-pressure weather front swirled into a storm above northern France. It formed an ominous gray wall of clouds. As the storm front settled in over the rural countryside, rain began to fall. And it kept falling. 
small creeks began to rise, feeding into the tributaries of the Seine. The ground in the river basin around Paris soon became saturated. There was simply too much water for the region's soil to absorb. The ground started to crumble and dissolve. This loose earth could cause landslides and flash floods without warning. The first sign of impending disaster came on the early afternoon of Friday, January 21st, near the little mining town of Leroy. The village was 50 miles southeast of Paris and built along a small tributary along the Loire River. Leroy's coal mines were the lifeblood of the town, and most of its population worked in this industry. A little after 1 p.m. on the 21st, the dirt-covered miners were headed home for their daily lunch break. Today, they had to trudge through driving rain and thick mud to reach the warm safety of their houses. A few minutes later, there was a low rumble, and the entire village began to shake. Plates and utensils rattled off tables, and children screamed. A huge section of the hillside above the mine had broken loose. It was hurtling towards the town. Tons of mud, rock, and water plowed into the village, destroying several homes and pelting the other buildings with glass. Doors and windows were blown out across town. The survivors quickly scrambled out of their homes and looked up towards the mine. The landslide had left a jagged hole in the hill, and the displaced dirt had buried part of the village. They frantically collected pickaxes and shovels. Some used their bare hands to dig around the rubble of their neighbors' homes. The story spread to nearby communities. As night fell, more police, soldiers, and firefighters arrived to join ordinary citizens in digging out their village. The rain and mud continued to hinder their efforts. As they desperately dug to save what remained of Leroy, another tragedy struck in the eastern town of Troyes. Troyes had first been built during the Roman era. The ancient town was a hundred miles upriver from Paris on the banks of the Seine. A little after midnight on January 22nd, the sleeping residents of the town awoke to a rush of water outside. Suddenly, the water was inside their homes. The Seine had breached the riverbank and was pouring over the streets. People rushed to gather what possessions they could carry and threw on coats and boots. They hurried to higher ground as the water surged through the streets, slamming carts against buildings. It tore up loose cobblestones and gradually formed deep trenches in the roads that filled with river water. As the sun rose on the 22nd, the villagers of Troyes saw the remains of their homes. The flash flood had toppled walls. Whole buildings sagged on their foundations. People began to dig out their wrecked houses and salvage whatever they could from the mud. Meanwhile, the stories of destruction in Leroy and Troyes had reached Paris. Soon, newspapers carried eyewitness accounts, illustrations, and photographs of the flooded towns. But these tiny hamlets were a hundred miles upriver from the City of Light, and Parisians were unconcerned. They paid as much attention to the flooding villages as a New Yorker might pay attention to a farm in Oklahoma. The residents of Paris trusted the wide stone quays to prevent any flooding in the city. The calm attitude among Paris's citizens was largely thanks to the prefect of police, Louis Lepine. 
His role was that of police commissioner, fire chief, health inspector, and mayor all in one. His jurisdiction ranged from train schedules to sanitation and sewer work. Lepine had been reappointed in 1899, and he was well-liked by both the populace and government. He was so compassionate and hands-on in his work that he was known as the prefect of the street. Parisians trusted Lepine to keep the city safe and well-supplied and give them warning of any impending problems. He had done so for years. Over the course of his career, Lepine had become very familiar with the Seine's tumultuous waters. He had lived through many floods, all of which the city recovered from with little trouble. On the morning of January 22nd, he listened to the rain pounding on the street outside as he reviewed the notes in the police log from the previous night. Lepine saw that the clocks around the city had stopped and water had flooded a construction site on the new underground metro train line. Both of these were due to underground flooding, as the never-ending rainfall overwhelmed the sewer system beneath Paris. These were separate events in different parts of the city, and Lepine saw no reason to worry about minor sewer overflows. But then, Lepine saw a notation that said the Seine had risen four feet overnight, it was the fastest rise ever recorded in a single day, a fact that made Lepine nervous. In order to get a clearer assessment of the flood risk, Lepine consulted with the National Hydrometric Service. This was France's federal office for recording rainfall and producing flood notices. It maintained a telegraph warning network along the length of the Seine. He was shocked to discover that there had been no communication from the warning stations in three days. The rising water had destroyed the telegraph lines upriver. Lepine hurried to the riverbank to see the conditions for himself. The initial rush of water that had inundated Leroy and Troyes was now reaching Paris. But the river was still well below the tops of the quays. Unlike the outlying villages, Paris had built walls to withstand the ebb and flow of the Mercurial River. With only some stopped clock towers and a single metro train line experiencing a few delays, many Parisians believed there was little cause for alarm. They only needed to look at the Zouave to see how bad the flooding might be. The Zouave was a 20-foot statue of a soldier at the base of one of the city's main bridges across the Seine. The statue stood tall and proud in his uniform and cape as the river flowed around his base, just a few feet above the water. The river often reached his boots, which meant the Seine was about six feet higher than average. This was a common sight and no cause for alarm among Parisians. But when Lepine scouted the river on the morning of January 22nd, the water had already reached the Zouave's knees, a 10-foot rise over normal. To make matters more suspicious, the Seine was flowing much faster than its usual rate, reaching speeds of 15 miles an hour. Hundreds of pieces of debris were caught in the current. They swirled in eddies and whirlpools all along the frothing river. The explosive sounds of tree branches and wood barrels slamming into the statue could be heard all along the riverbank. By early afternoon, Lepine was receiving the first reports of Parisians being driven from their homes by the water rising out of the sewers, and the rain was still relentless. 
Then news came in from Bercy, a neighborhood on the eastern outskirts of Paris. It was known for its vast wine warehouses that supplied the entire city. Several main electrical plants were also located not far from the warehouses. The town was built up to the very edge of the Seine, and now the river had broken loose. Three feet of water cascaded down the streets, covering the entire neighborhood in a matter of seconds. The power station had water pouring over its foundations. In the warehouses, thousands of wine barrels had broken loose. They became projectiles smashing into people and buildings. All of Bercy had descended into chaos. We'll hear about the first tragic consequences of the rising water right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. It was mid-afternoon on January 22, 1910 in Paris. The water level of the Seine was now 10 feet above normal as the freezing rain turned into snow. A few miles upstream from the city, flooding was being reported in small towns and villages. On the outskirts of Paris, the neighborhood of Bercy was fighting back against the rising floodwaters. Casks of wine bobbed in several feet of muddy water as warehouse workers tried to salvage their entire year's production. Electric subway trains ground to a halt as the power plants in Bercy short-circuited. Filthy water poured into the tunnels, sending people running from the underground platforms. The news of Bercy's inundation spread across the city. Curious Parisians soon lined up along the quays to watch dozens of bobbing wine casks smash into splinters against the pilings of the city's stone bridges. These small explosions sounded like gunshots echoing across the riverbank. The heavy current also pressed against the stone walls of the quays, weakening their structure. Several sinkholes opened and threatened to collapse whole sections. The newspaper, Le Matin, wrote the account of a girl named Olympe Cordy, who was walking on the Quai d'Ivry and was swept away in an eddy. Several passersby had to intervene and rescue her. In a town farther upriver, a young boy named Édouard Brulfer was not so lucky. He drowned after he fell into the swollen river Marne, a tributary of the Seine. Soldiers pulled his limp body from the near-freezing water while his mother looked on from the snowy riverbank. By evening on January 22nd, the story of the rising waters in Paris had reached international outlets. One article in the Washington Post described a particularly terrible sight in the Seine's black congested water. Corpses had been uprooted from the flooded graveyards upstream. Now they were bobbing in the swollen current. The world watched with macabre anticipation as the newspapers described the looming threat of floods. On the morning of January 23rd, Many Parisians woke up to find water seeping into their basements. 
The sewers had reached their capacity overnight. The snow hadn't let up, and now a thick layer of white slush stuck to rooftops and balconies across the city. The Seine had risen another two feet overnight, and now the river reached the thighs of the Zouave statue. It was 12 feet above normal. This two-foot rise was enough to flood some neighborhoods on the left bank. To avoid wading through the knee-deep freezing water, the Parisians built interlocking networks of elevated walkways called passerelles. These were often little more than pine boards laid over sawhorses and crates. They were so narrow that two pedestrians could hardly pass each other without one being knocked off balance. Many ended up in the water. With the bitter temperatures, the water was cold enough to put them at risk of hypothermia. The passerelles became vital connections between buildings as muddy water rose higher in the streets of the left bank. Louis Lépine, the prefect of police in charge of the city's infrastructure, marshaled his forces to reach the most affected neighborhoods. He also requested assistance from the military, and soldiers soon arrived to help. Lépine sent police to evacuate areas that were at risk of flooding and to aid in the construction of passerelles. The raw sewage from the overflowing system had permeated the groundwater, so he also issued a citywide warning that the water supply might be contaminated. A new problem became apparent as the day wore on. The flooding that wrecked the outer villages had also wiped out the farms that supplied Paris with fresh meat and produce. This was exacerbated by the basement flooding, which affected butchers and grocers who stored their extra stock in cellars. Over the course of mere days, food prices rose as the market's supply chain disappeared. There were reports of hoarding and price gouging. Many poor inhabitants of Paris were now without food or water. To make their situation worse, the cheap basement apartments were also flooding. Some of the poorest Parisians were driven out into the street by the rising water. But the bourgeois apartments situated on upper floors were still safe from the threat of a flood. Despite myriad problems in the outer boroughs, the situation in Paris itself seemed stable. As the passerelles were constructed, Parisians went about their daily lives, walking above the water. One of these Parisians was 29-year-old Guillaume Apollinaire. He was a well-known poet in France, with distinguished friends like Pablo Picasso and Marcel Duchamp. Guillaume kept notes and wrote articles for the Parisian newspapers during the flood, and often went for walks to examine the neighborhoods for news and stories. Guillaume heard that the water was six feet deep in the basement of his building on the 23rd, but this didn't worry him as he had breakfast in his second-story apartment. He still wasn't alarmed when he saw his neighbors evacuating as he embarked on his morning walk. Guillaume found the streets with standing water to be charming, like a canal in Holland or Venice. Guillaume went to the riverbank and gazed at the powerful Seine. The river had turned a sickening yellow color as it collected sewage and mud from farther upstream. It was flowing at a speed Guillaume had never seen. Suddenly, he saw an entire tree, down to its roots, rushing past in the swirling river. 
A moment later, he witnessed a black cow mooing frantically as it fought against the 20-mile-an-hour current. Then it disappeared under the frothy water. The gravity of the situation dawned on him, and Guillaume was horrified. As he hurried back home, the flooded streets didn't seem so charming anymore. When he arrived, he found a passerelle had been nailed across the front door, barring his entry. A police officer helped him climb in a second-story window. As Guillaume went to bed on the night of January 23rd, he heard his remaining downstairs neighbors sobbing as the waters continued to rise outside. Until that night, most of Paris believed the flash floods in the distant towns and the rising waters in the Seine were dependent on the rainstorms. They assumed that once the rain stopped, the water level would decrease. But they were wrong. The land around the Seine was like a sponge that had already filled to capacity. There was nowhere for the water to go except above ground into the Seine. And on the night of the 23rd, the river was about to burst. The suburb of ici les Molineaux, known simply as Ici, was preparing for such an event as midnight approached. The Seine was nearly over the levees along the riverbank. Ici residents were encouraged to evacuate immediately. Two hours later, at 2 a.m. on the 24th, the Seine overran its banks in Ici. One of the residents, a man named Hubert, was there at the moment the river burst into the town. He later described it, saying, a furious wave that nothing could hold back rushed forward onto the plain. A torrent was unleashed and a deluge of rain kept falling. The wave tore through the village, crushing wooden carts and tearing up the foundations of buildings. By 3 a.m., Isi was under six feet of water. The gas lamp posts had stayed illuminated, casting an eerie glow over the avenues of water, pockmarked with floating debris. Ten miles farther up the winding river, in the town of Alfortville, the water was rising over three inches an hour. The town had almost 12,000 residents, and many of them were trapped. Alfortville was located at the confluence of the Seine and Marne tributary, considered one of the entrances to Paris. The town was only accessible by a pair of bridges over each river. The water had already overflowed these exits, trapping any residents in the town. They would simply have to wait until the water levels went down. To make matters worse, only 10% of the town had sewer lines in 1910. In most neighborhoods, rainwater and overflow from the river had nowhere to drain. At 4.30 a.m. on the 24th, a man in Alfortville was awoken by his dog leaping into bed, crying loudly. When the man got out of bed, he stepped into freezing water up to his ankles. By 10 a.m., the flood was up to his waist. A British journalist named H. Warner Allen visited the flooded Parisian suburbs as dawn broke on the 24th. He said, From the visits to outlying districts, I saw thick black slime, abject shivering misery and great lakes of yellow water, with here and there a house rising like an island from the desolate wastes. 
The New York Times provided an update for its readers about the worsening situation in Paris. Three bridges were at risk of collapse, and the tunnels under the Seine had been closed indefinitely. The Louvre, one of the most famous museums in the world and located right at the edge of the Seine, had lost its boilers in the basement. There was no heat in the building, and the famous artworks were vulnerable to the freezing air. With many suburbs now uninhabitable, refugees began moving towards Paris's city center. It was still snowing, and the suburbanites hoped to find warmth and safety in the city's public buildings. Most of these were under the jurisdiction of police prefect Louis Lépine. Meanwhile, Lépine was out surveying the damage in the suburbs himself. He walked with a cane and rubber boots, wearing a dark overcoat and black bowler hat, as he looked over large swaths of streets submerged in brown water. That afternoon, three of the city's four garbage processing centers had flooded. Now the city's trash also floated in the water, which was already contaminated by sewage. Rotting food and drowned animals clogged the river and streets. The stench was unbearable. And as Lepine hurried along, he covered his nose with a handkerchief. By the time he had returned to the city center, he was certain Paris was doomed. If the Seine got much higher, it would further devastate the soaked city. And there was no way to protect themselves as the river continued to rise because the fetid groundwater was filling the sewers, tunnels, and catacombs. The stone quays that had protected the city for centuries were useless against water rushing up from beneath the city. It was only a matter of time before Paris would be inundated. We'll hear about the impending destruction in the heart of the city right after this. Now, back to the story. On the afternoon of January 24, 1910, the Seine was almost 15 feet higher than normal. Several suburban towns around Paris, France, had been wiped out by the river as it burst its banks and shoved a wall of water through their streets. But so far, Paris had been spared from the sudden cataclysm of a burst levee. The flooding in the city had been gradual. The water had risen from the sewers and tunnels that permeated the ground beneath the city. These areas could hold no more, finally pushing the water up through basements and manholes. Meanwhile, the Seine was a disturbing sight. Debris and flotsam from upriver coursed through the city. It was surging forward at over 20 miles an hour, and the frothing yellow water was clogged with wine barrels, dead cattle, and entire trees. Over the days since the first rushes of water had washed out Bercy, Troyes, and Issy, debris had been collecting under the bridges. Bystanders would often witness a buoyant wine barrel or wooden crate come tumbling down the river current and disappear under the stone arches. Then, a few minutes later, it would usually pop out like a cork on the other side. As more debris came down the river, fewer items would reappear from under the bridge. The river was clogging up with junk. Some brave opportunists saw the debris in the river as free for the taking. 
a journalist for the newspaper Le Galois, wrote about people climbing over the Solferino bridge railings to grab items from the churning current. He said, Men with huge hooked poles are on the watch for wreckage. Lo, a cask of wine, the chance of a lifetime. Ah, the hooked pole missed. An armchair is next, then a bed, then a grand piano. The water level was over the waistline of the nearly 20-foot Zouave statue, which was the public measuring stick for the river's depth. But Parisians didn't even have to look at the Zouave to know that the Seine was nearing a record high. The water was already flooding some streets and homes on the left bank, and the inhabitants were anxiously rushing to save what they could. Boats were becoming a common form of transit as the passerelles were overrun with foot traffic. There was panic brewing among the Parisians as the inhabitants of the wrecked suburbs clogged the streets. These refugees were making their way further into the city to seek food and shelter. Providing emergency aid was another of Louis Lepine's responsibilities. On the evening of the 24th, he made his way to the Palais Bourbon, where the national government met to pass legislation. He spoke in favor of opening the treasury to assist the frantic population. His impassioned plea was only marginally successful. The government voted to provide only basic food and supplies to the capital's stranded masses. It wasn't enough. As Lepine left the Palais, he noticed that even some government clerks had abandoned their homes and were living in the public building. It was too dangerous to return home, so they slept on cots and desks. However, the rising water was threatening the Palais, too, drenching the stores of food and coal for heating in the building's basement. Late that night, the government building finally lost power and heating, joining the rest of the city in the biting cold. The government workers went out into the snow and hunted birds and rabbits to cook over fires, joining the rest of the flood-stricken city in the desperate search for food and supplies. As the sun rose on the 25th, a sudden explosion rocked the southern side of the city in the suburban town of Ivry. The rolling floodwater had broken dozens of barrels of chemicals stored at a vinegar plant. The water and chemicals mixed to create a flammable gas. A spark from an unknown source ignited the fumes and triggered an explosion and subsequent blaze. Towering flames suddenly rose over Ivry, just three miles from Paris. But the flood prevented the fire brigades from reaching the conflagration. The water was too deep to reach the factory, so the firefighters could only watch helplessly as the building burned down to the foundations. However, there were still dangerous chemicals at the site, and the smoldering fire threatened to ignite them in another terrible explosion. Lepine ordered a team of firefighters from Paris to join the squads from Ivry. Together, the two fire crews pushed through the floodwaters to extinguish the smoldering fire and prevent another blast. But the danger in Ivry was far from over. A nearby veterinary school had become a triage center for victims of the flood, and it was at risk of being overrun by frantic citizens. By the morning of the 25th, it had filled to capacity with suburban refugees. 
As the day wore on, even more people sought shelter from the driving rain. The director of the vet school, Professor Gustave Barrier, was worried about the sudden, massive influx of refugees. But he also saw the terrible state of the poor, huddled families and knew he had to help. Barrier described the situation in his memoir. He said, Half-dressed, soaking wet, starving, they had left their houses quickly. Everything they owned was gone. Babies cried. Huge tears rolled down the cheeks of their parents. One woman with eight children doesn't know where her husband is. Professor Barrier had no communication with the neighboring towns as the water continued to rise. The people who had sought shelter at the vet school found themselves trapped again as the flood surrounded the campus. Then, late in the afternoon, a small fleet of boats appeared in the flooded streets outside the school. They were carrying Red Cross workers and soldiers to help evacuate and assist the trapped refugees. Professor Barrier breathed a sigh of relief as he saw the medical supplies and food unloaded in the courtyard. Meanwhile, Paris was descending into controlled chaos, as most districts, called arrondissements, were filled with displaced flood victims. An army of volunteers struggled to provide soup and bread at improvised shelters across the city. In the neighborhoods on higher ground, the mayor released a notice encouraging the citizens to band together to help victims. He said, an unprecedented catastrophe has upset Paris. The more fortunate arrondissement must subsidize the urgent needs of those who do not have the same resources. But soon, every arrondissement in Paris would be reeling from the disaster. Some rich neighborhoods in Paris were still relatively dry, causing dissension among the lawmakers in regards to emergency funds. In order to gain more government assistance, Louis Lépine knew the national leaders needed to see just how terrible the flood had been in the suburbs. So on the afternoon of January 25th, the fourth day of the flood, Lépine took President Armand Fallier on a tour to inspect the damage around the city. As Lépine and Fallier trudged through knee-high mud and water, the president finally realized the full extent of the disaster. Victims were still trapped on the upper floors of flooded buildings. Distraught mothers carried sobbing children through the streets with nowhere to go. Confused city workers tried to organize a response with the meager resources at hand. The president was humbled. He assured Lépine that he would have all the money and manpower he needed. The rain clouds finally dissipated on the evening of the 25th. The Seine was over 15 feet higher than normal, and a thin sheet of dirty water stretched across many streets, reflecting the moonlight and stars. But this was only a brief reprieve. 200 miles to the north, another thunderstorm was forming over England and heading for France. As the sun rose on Wednesday, January 26th, ships along the French coast were held in port as the raging storm settled in over the English Channel. High winds and pounding rain blasted the coastline, heading inland toward the capital. Along the ports, a rumor began that the Eiffel Tower had collapsed in Paris. 
People sent frantic messages to relatives in their beloved capital city, hoping for news of their family and friends. But there was only silence. The flood had knocked out the central telegraph exchange in the basement of the post office. That office was responsible for the 728 telegraph lines that connected Paris to the outside world. The city was cut off from international news and trade, as well as communication with other parts of France. Paris was now alone in the fight against the rising floodwaters. At noon on the 26th, the fierce storm from the coast finally reached Paris. A deluge covered the city. The Seine was up to the chest of the Zouave statue, a rise of over 15 feet. If the water reached his shoulders, the Seine could overrun the quays and flood the streets with a wave of foul yellow water. Even the wealthy arrondissement on higher ground would not be safe. Then, tragedy struck at the Louvre, where much of the world's most important art was stored. The museum complex was built right up to the edge of the quays on the right bank, and the stone walls were beginning to buckle under the onslaught of the swollen river. Water had punched through into the underground archives. The entire museum was at risk of collapse. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. For more information on the 1910 Paris flood, amongst the many sources we used, we found Paris Underwater by Jeffrey H. Jackson extremely helpful to our research. Next week, we'll follow the citizens of Paris as they rush to save victims and priceless landmarks from the highest water level ever recorded in the city. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Natural Disasters for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Andrew Messer with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Tim Johnson and Kate Leonard. Kate Leonard.